Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. We can hear from AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. I'm Andrei Krenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I focus mostly on learning algorithms for robotic manipulation in my research. And with me is my co-host. I'm Sharon, a third-year PhD student in the machine learning group working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis. And we are once again going to chat about some of the most interesting AI news from last week. And this week we have quite a variety of stories from different areas and focus of AI. Uh, So we're just going to dive in with our first story being titled, I chatted with a therapy bot to ease my COVID fears. It was bizarre. So this is from uh, one zero on Medium, and it's about how the offer downloaded one of these uh, chatbots that help with mental health, in this case, Wobot, and tried it out and uh, basically wrote about his experience uh, talking to it and kind of reflecting on the state of the field. Uh, so it's an interesting article because uh, there's been a lot of these sorts of apps coming out, uh, chatbots that are meant to help with mental health, uh, mental health in different ways. And now that uh, there's much more telehealth approaches to mental health, so a lot of people are talking to a therapist via video, it may be that these chatbot tools will become more normalized, more common, and perhaps even a tool that more therapists start to use. So um, yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. I'm a fan of this application of AI. I think if done right, it's uh, very useful and promising. Uh, Yeah, Sharon, what is your impression of uh, Wobots and this whole story? Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting story. Uh, I have some background on Wobot having um, Uh, tested it before and also hearing from uh, my advisor, Andrew, uh, who is on the board of Wobot and has told me a bit about um, the way they uh, drive their work forward, um, largely uh, following existing techniques that do work, including CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which has been shown to work in many, many different clinical uh, uh, trials. Um, And so, this basically applying something that has worked in a, a therapy session to um, to the chatbot. And I think this is somewhere where I've seen chatbots really flourish even before the whole GPT-2 uh, shebang came out um, and computer vision was still, um, I guess, the main thing being applied out there. Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad that this helps kind of uh, or at least enables and spreads therapy and the ability for everyone to have therapy in a sense, um, since therapy is very, very expensive uh, and often not covered fully by insurance. Yeah, I had a very similar reaction. In fact, I've myself tried out Wobot out of curiosity a while ago, and I thought it was uh, doing some really nice things. I also heard a talk by its founder, uh, Ellison Darcy, who is a clinical research psychologist and an adjunct faculty 
in psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford School of Medicine. So this is coming from, you know, actual psychiatrists, actual uh, experts in mental health and not just some, uh, you know, CS people hacking around with AI. And I do think it's worth noting that interestingly, these tools generally aren't some sort of really open-ended AI, just learning how to talk to people or anything like that. It's uh, fairly carefully designed interactions and kind of pre-written scripts with some amount of tweaking from AI recognition. But for the most part, it's very carefully designed to help the user. And uh, I think uh, it's it's an example of how when used carefully and with a very mindful approach, AI can be useful, but domain expertise is still also very important. Absolutely. And uh, in the article, uh, it's mentioned, quote, one morning I expressed to Wysa, another bot, that I was feeling pretty good. And yet the Penguin bot persisted in asking me to admit what I felt least when I felt least secure about and then to refrain from, quote, negative self-talk. Um, so I thought this was quite an interesting observation and, uh, basically that these bots aren't perfect and they'll make errors that just feel really out of place. Um, and perhaps for therapy, um, perhaps there is a range of what's, of what's okay. And when people feel like they are talking to a bot, it's okay. Or, uh, they'll give the bot a little bit more leeway, but then there are times when it just feels re- really inappropriate. And, um, I recently tried uh, uh, chatting with a chatbot called Replica uh, that I saw in the news just to test it out. And I realized, you know, I think it was definitely something she started saying that seemed off or not responding to me directly. That just made me stop using it completely after a day of just looking around. Uh, so I think there there is still much to be done since a human would probably be able to respond more appropriately at least I think, uh, potentially, I'm sure there are people who kind of listen past you and don't, um, don't actually listen to what you have to say. So in a way that's similar. Um, and I've definitely, uh, tried various therapists before and I have never really felt in sync with any. Um, and so maybe in the same way it was, it was the case for this bot as well. So, um, I don't know what you think, Andre. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Uh, this article notes that um, probably chatbots aren't going to replace, you know, with human therapy. They're not going to be, you know, as potent, uh, at least if you find a good match. But they might be sort of an additional resource uh, and something that can be used alongside human therapy and, um, yeah, sort of be additional one interesting thing I found in the article, uh, speaking to your experiences, is that uh, there was actually a study in uh, Nature Digital Medicine that surveyed 73 mental health apps. So there's just a ton of these right now. And they found that most of them don't really cite any published scientific literature. Most of them presumably don't have any studies to show to actually help, although... Um, Warbot and Wista do have some small scale studies. So it's it's kind of a, an area where it seems to be growing maybe faster than it should. There's a lot of maybe less promising chatbots, but hopefully uh, at least a few of them uh, are developed responsibly and 
and thoughtfully and will turn out to be useful uh, as we head into uh, this year continuing to go on and uh, not getting much easier so far. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm glad this is kind of uh, at the fingertips of everyone with a smartphone. So um, yeah, we'll see what there is to come. Uh, I definitely tried Replica because I saw some stories out there about how uh, it combated loneliness and was like kind of a fun friend to talk to comp- uh, partially. And I thought that was super interesting. And I just wanted to see what uh, essentially GPT-2 could empower um, with, with of course, some engineering as well. Yeah, we were actually just talking uh, before this about AI Dungeon, which is in a sense similar. It's kind of a game where you uh, interact with an AI and you make up a story together and go on an, a text adventure. And uh, I guess the idea here can be a bit similar where maybe down the line we can actually chat with AIs when you're bored or lonely to uh, not replace human interaction, but uh, as this article notes, kind of be a band-aid and uh, something to uh help out uh, when other options aren't there. So yeah, good reminder of the situation with field and definitely an article that covers it well, uh, this one in one zero. Speaking of responsible AI, uh, Google just released on their blog a new article and update on our work on AI and responsible innovation. And so this is a follow-up on uh, their previous AI principles updates. Um, and this is from last year on Uh, Google's learnings and practice of uh, AI principles. And so uh, covered in this article is uh, information about internal education. So various training programs that Google uh, Googlers can, can take and also are some are mandatory to take. Um, They provide tools uh, for researchers. Uh, They also touch on the review process uh, a bit on what is allowed to go out um, and finally, uh, they talk about external engagement uh, in which uh, they actually bring together advocates for communities of people who are currently un- underrepresented in the, in the tech industry and who will most likely be impacted by the consequences of AI. Uh, and overall, uh, this blog post essentially ends with the promise to continue informing the public on specific actions that they're taking as well as progress they've made uh, on on AI principles. One interesting thing I thought uh, was that uh, some Google researchers came out with a framework called a model card that's actually similar to a nutrition label on on foods. And so this was supposed to have a quick summary of, you know, the AI's the AI model's intent of use, its performance um, for uh, especially uh, broken down by a variety of backgrounds. Uh, so if it was biased, essentially, uh, and it's a really interesting kind of like model card um, that is similar to nutrition. So what's good for you? What's bad for you? How, like, how does it stack rank? Uh, I thought that was um, interesting and a quick way to showcase, you know, um, what are the issues with this model and, you know, where can we improve on this? And also where, where does this seem to succeed right now? Yeah. Yeah. I'm also a big fan of this model cards work. This is actually from uh, Google's internal ethics team that does research on how to conduct ethical AI research, which has some, uh, 
big names like Margaret Mitchell and Timna Jabru uh, working on things like that. And uh, so, yeah, it's very cool that they A, sponsor researchers like that and B, have internal initiatives like education and reviewing to ensure that uh, the research they themselves do and the products they develop uh, have some sort of ethical standard. Um, I, I actually, I don't know if you have seen this more than I have, Sharon, but I don't know that I've seen any other, other company uh, share as much or do as much uh, on the scale as Google. I certainly haven't seen Facebook necessarily have such reviewing practices or Microsoft or any other big company. You're right. Sadly, I haven't either. <laughs> uh, I guess Microsoft partakes in the whole partnership on NAI kind of consortium, um, and perhaps the others do too. Uh, I think OpenAI might touch on this a bit, but more from the policy side. Uh, yeah, and I think other than that, I don't see it as much. And it's really impressive that Google does do it. I really wish it weren't impressive and it were just a norm, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Google, Google does this essentially. Cause I think it then shows that they are holding people accountable for it, that they're holding themselves accountable for making progress in it. So. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I mean, some of these companies do have, let's say AI principles or, you know, ethics of AI or something like that. But I think what's very cool here is that um, the other things listed, like the education efforts, the tools and research that Google develops, having this review process, uh, having external engagement of advocates uh, for these communities, all of these things together are kind of diverse uh, ways of making sure that the use of AI is ethical. And... Um, yeah, so maybe uh, this is a silver lining, even if giant companies are dominating AI, uh, it's good to see that they are being thoughtful here, uh, or at least uh, seem to be based on what they describe here. Right. I think it's much better that uh, Google produces a document like this that uh, is just much more concrete on what they're doing. Because I, I feel like if you just have principles in AI, like who really... Who really is going to believe you're going to be implementing those principles? Uh, you know, and this actually kind of uh, reifies those principles, shows that, you know, those principles are not just abstract. They, they can be concretized and they can be implemented. They have flaws. And these are the ways we're kind of pushing things forward. And not only that, we're sharing this with the world so that other companies and other organizations could adopt these as well. And Others are, you know, adopting uh, these model cards, essentially, that Google has put out. And so I think that's fantastic. It's like sharing about um, metrics in, in fairness, for example, or all sorts of uh, fairness in AI and explain, explainability, all sorts of things. Um, and I, I just think that is so important to share uh, amongst companies, amongst groups uh, that... I'm very, very glad that they're being transparent about it. It's kind of like deciding to put your code open source or not. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, I mean, sure, they get some probably goodwill from saying these things, but uh, 
beyond that cynical take, I do agree that by making the details of what they do and the processes they're using uh, so public, that hopefully will help others uh, follow suit. And uh, maybe even like startups will start thinking about ethics from the outset. Yeah, knowing some of the people, individuals behind it, I actually feel a lot more confident that it's not just uh, for PR. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Speaking of things that we can feel good about in AI, uh, we can move on to our next topic, which is about an application of machine learning to uh, understanding the climate and what's going on with it. So this is basically a technical uh, piece of news. Uh, It was covered in Tech Explore with the article Breakthrough Machine Learning Approach quickly produces higher resolution climate data. It's about how researchers at the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL, have uh, written a paper titled Adversarial, uh, titled Adversarial Super Resolution of Climat- Climatological Wind and Solar Data in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So they applied pretty standard, honestly, techniques uh, of GANs, of these generative adversarial networks, to um, being able to uh, enhance images and data uh, of climate activity. Um, So I find this interesting in a way because these are two things that you work on to some extent, Sharon. You work on adversarial methods and also applications of ML to climate. So, yeah, I'm curious to see, you know, is this the sort of thing you read about a lot? Um, What's your first impression here? Lots of thoughts. First, I'm very happy to see something at the intersection of what I've uh, been working at. And uh, we'll say that it is not super common that I see things at this intersection. So that's very, very exciting. Uh, I will say, though, and perhaps this is because I am a more or less a deep, uh, deeper expert in uh, in in this at this intersection in these fields. Um, I do my gut reaction is definitely some kind of criticism or some kind of caution uh, from like the hype around uh, an article like this, uh, even a technical piece like this, and it's largely that. Well, if we apply these uh, super resolution GANs is what they're called. Uh, So these generative adversarial networks that have been able to produce uh, both deep fakes and also been able to uh, do all sorts of things, uh, produce very realistic images. Um, Can they do perform super resolution on this type of climate data and be reliable? Can we can we trust this data where it's saying, you know, from one pixel, it's able to infer hundreds of pixels uh, from from that just one pixel? Like, are those, is that higher resolution imagery, is that higher res- resolution data more reliable, more accurate, or equally as accurate as the, the fuzzy stuff that we had before? Um, I'm not sure if you don't embed physics into these models, uh, it really is just a hallucination. So it could be not real. Um, yes, it's looking over kind of the statistics of pixels, but it really, I really don't think you can, 
actually trust that and then make necessarily accurate downstream uh, judgments on it. And I've seen this kind of super resolution GANs, super resolution um, uh, work being applied to uh, medicine uh, quite a few times. And that has definitely struck a chord of concern uh, because people are now, you know, super resolving things and suddenly, oh, it looks like you have cancer or like, oh, all of a sudden your cancer is gone. And that's that's kind of concerning, of course. Um, and it's a much more immediate and tangible thing that we could point to and say, we really don't want that. We can't, we have to make sure that doesn't happen. We need to embed physics. We need to embed some notion of, you know, how we're sampling um, our data points uh, when we do do this super resolution. And so I think um, people have develop those techniques. I don't see that immediately in this paper, uh, but I haven't, I haven't dived super closely into it yet. Um, and I have seen, uh, things from these, these same authors, uh, that do embed a bit of physics into these models. And so that would be far more promising, I believe, because then we actually are driven not only by kind of, uh, the data and the statistics behind that data, but also an understanding of what the bounds are and how physics, uh, how physics works. And we can embed those priors in. And that was a lot. So sorry, go ahead. Audrey. No, no, it's, it's great. Actually. I think, I think it's interesting because your response, I think does speak to a pretty common response by researchers when they see the methods they work on covered in media or, you know, or media coverage of a new paper, which is in general, you do think it's cool to see progress and to see people trying new things and, and getting new results. That's always exciting. But at the same time, you're also very aware of the limits and the caveats that one has to keep in mind uh, whenever you see something out being covered. So in this case, as you say, this is an initial application of this method to this data. They have some sort of test accuracy metrics, right? But probably not enough to verify if these are actually usable downstream, as you say. So that's just something to keep in mind for our listeners as you see coverage of AI. In general, you should think of it as these are early results, trying something out. It's not ready to be used out in the real world yet. Maybe more problems will become clear with this uh, as things develop. And in fact, that's what research is supposed to be about. You make some progress and then there are still other things to tweak. And hopefully as people build on each other's work, all the little issues get worked out and we get to really robust and uh, useful techniques that can be relied on in the real world. Uh, I think criticisms aside, uh, this work has shown that, you know, if we apply this to, uh, for example, a wide range of different climate scenarios, uh, we could then get high resolution uh, data on all sorts of things that would enable so many downstream, you know, forecasting, planning, uh, tasks, and of course, policymaking. And so this is really, really important for for this field and for climate and for climate change, uh, brought more broadly. And so this is potentially a huge game changer in altering the paradigm for how we do climate modeling and, um, climate model forecasting. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, always good to see work on useful problems and always good to be skeptical of how much progress remains to be done. 
Um, on that note of the question of ha- when can we use AI out in the real world and sort of the problem of trying to move from research to application, we have our last topic, which is once again a topic we cover a lot because there's a lot of news about it, about facial recognition. And the article in question in this case is from CNET and it's, it's titled In the Blackest City in America, a fight to end facial recognition. Uh, and some related articles have also been published recently, such as uh, from Engadget, uh, facial recognition linked to a second wrongful arrest by Detroit police. And also there was in the Atlantic, defund facial recognition. So all of these articles broadly are about the use of facial recognition in Detroit. And they come on the heels of, of course, the recent events in the U.S. with uh, Black Lives Matter protesting and also news about the wrongful arrest of Robert Williams, which came out in The New York Times. And now there's been a second such incident. So, um, yeah, this uh, article presents a quite nice overview of the current efforts by activists to actually shut down uh, or further limit the use of facial recognition. So right now, uh, Detroit police can use facial recognition for cases that involve uh, violent crimes, but there's still concerns about its usefulness, especially given uh, we've seen there's issues of accuracy and with bias. So there's there's some really good details uh, diving into what's going on that is definitely worth looking into. I think one striking quote from this is that a weekly public report by the Detroit Police Department showed that the department has used its facial recognition primarily on black people in 68 out of 70 cases this year. That's crazy. And that's that's knowing that, you know, this technology is particularly inaccurate, inaccurate when it comes to people of color. Uh, especially women of color. And so this is just extremely concerning that it's being used where it is most biased and most inaccurate uh, and targeted towards those certain groups. And that's just absolutely horrible. Uh, like you just can't make it. That, that's just like the worst, the worst way of applying this technology, I think. Um, and I think what really uh, gets me is that it doesn't reduce crime. Like surveillance is not reducing crime necessarily here. Uh, so ideally, you know, you know, surveillance can actually reduce crime and make things better, you know, help with safety, but it isn't. Um, and there, and there are errors as well. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of as a society, we need to think about, you know, what are the benefits and risks of a technology such as this one? And it does sound like, the risks far outweigh the benefits here. Yeah, right now, looking at the contents of this article, it seems like there's not much evidence that these are being put to use well, Uh, whereas we do have now two examples of wrongful arrests. Uh, In the case of Robert Williams, a really striking story of how just based on a faulty facial recognition, he was uh, actually arrested and uh, that really went badly. It's also interesting how this article notes that uh, Detroit has been working with this company, DataWorks, and has their FaceWatch Plus technology. And in fact, right now, uh, they've already spent a million uh, 
and more on the technology and are about to renew their contract with AutoWorks for more than $200,000. So right now the fight is all sort of on whether they should renew this contract and keep investing in this direction or whether they should maybe pause and uh, correct their procedures around how it's used. So it's very interesting to see how this is developing in Detroit and probably something we'll see a lot more of in the coming decade in any major city, uh, much like is happening here. Yes, definitely. And um, this also draws me to the concern of, you know, we were talking about super resolution earlier, and it does concern me that a lot of people see, you know, privacy techniques as just blurring faces. That doesn't work, actually. Uh, AI can, like these facial recognition technologies are are superhuman in a sense that they can still recognize people from a blurred image. And if they're wrong, it, it appears that their users will still believe them. Um, and so that's really concerning, I think. Um, and that definitely worries me. Uh, and uh, I guess in, in the lab here, uh, I and a couple other folks are working on a tool to just mask people in uh images by putting like a black lives matters fist on top of people's faces and so using facial recognition technology or face detection technology rather um to then find where the faces are and put something on top of the faces and say like let's tweet these pictures out instead these anonymized ones with opaque kind of uh you can call it an emoji on top of people's faces because i i really do I'm worried that people think, you know, blurring is enough when it really just isn't. Uh, and people are not only uh, recognizing things better, like AI can recognize things better. A separate problem is definitely also reconstruction. So that's related to super resolution where you could reconstruct a face from a blurry face that probably doesn't look exactly like uh, the the actual uh the actual face, uh, but that people are potentially trusting. Um, and so that all concerns me um, and is definitely related to the, the prior, uh, prior work. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's been actually kind of impressive how much news we have seen and talked about on this podcast about facial recognition and how much of it has been pretty concerning. Um, at the same time, I think I'm glad to be more informed on this topic and, and hopefully to be helping our listeners be more informed. It seems to be we're really in a moment now or at the beginning of a moment or something where how this technology is used and actually put in practice in the real world is being put to the test. And hopefully uh, right now in Detroit, they're figuring it out and uh, they can find a compromise where the benefits uh, and the usefulness for investigations can be had while still using it responsibly. All right. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Skynet Today's Let's Talk AI podcast. You can find the articles we discussed here today and subscribe to our weekly newsletter with similar ones at skynettoday.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating if you like the show. Be, Be sure, sure to, to tune in next week. week.